Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland, and I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Dominique and I both love training. When the two of us get together, it's a non-stop conversation. And that's what we want to share with you in these podcasts. We want to share with you our love of horses and our fascination with training. And Dominique, we had such a great treat. Talk about being able to just completely, the expression is geek out. We had the webinar with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Boy, did he pack in an enormous amount of material into two and a half hours. My head is still spinning with all of the all the various topics that he covered. I know. So, it was, I mean, he did it again. Some of the things in that webinar, you know, were things that were part of those notions that I thought were set in stone. And sure enough... Jesus approached it and gave us more to think about. That's right. That's right. So he's done it again. He's done it again. He's just got such a good way of looking at everything inside out or sideways or, or really coming at it and saying, really, is that, let's, let's really parse this uh, a little bit more. Yeah. Adding more details, refining things. So, so just because it's 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 not really fair to talk about it for people who haven't, <laughs> who weren't there. But he started with a background discussion of escape and avoidance because the the topic that we were heading towards was poison cues because that's what we have been talking about over the past few podcasts: poison cues and loopy training and and the relate and and related to that negative reinforcement. So the combination of negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement and what happens when you put those two different procedures together and so Jesus started out by talking about escape and avoidance and it was a fascinating discussion but I think one of the things that I most appreciated about the talk is how much effort he put into translating and really explaining what he was talking about rather than just relying on a wave of technical language, which oftentimes when you have people who are using a lot of labels, you are left thinking, well, they may know what they're talking about. I hope they know what they're talking about. But I'm not sure I know what they're talking about. And I love the way Jesus, the point that he was making we don't, we're not always talking about the same thing. And his example that he was giving, what was it? It was airless learning. And he was at a conference where he was, somebody asked a question about the poison cue. And, and they asked, well, how do you, how do you avoid, if you have a poison cue, how do you resolve it? And he was thinking, well, I can't really tell them about loopy training because these aren't animal trainers and they don't know that language. So I'll just refer to errorless learning and the person he was talking about said oh no 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 that no, we don't we don't we don't use errorless learning that's a terrible procedure and and he says oh, 
really, really? And, and then he asked, well, what do you mean by errorless learning? And the person gave him a definition of it. And, and Jesus... I think, I think it meant something like molding or... Yeah, something, something which like is, that. Which is another jargon right, word. But, right, right. Um, but it was, as Jesus said, it was... It had nothing to do no, with it was, what he meant. It was not what he had learned in graduate school. And so right. they, were have, they could be having a conversation using a term but talking about two completely different things. So I love the way he said, what you want to do is describe the procedure. And I love that. In, in plain English. <laughs> in plain English, describe the procedure, and then we can have a conversation. That's something that I've been very um, careful about in the podcast and uh, trying not to use too much of that terminology because... Well, certainly, I mean, his example to hear people talking with each other, even in an academic world, and not understanding each other because there are discrepancies between what they learned a few years ago and what is taught today. But also, you know, just to help us include as many people as possible, whether they're at the beginning of their journey or farther along their journey, because some people may be today at the beginning of the journey and are the future geeks. Yes, yes. But if we want them to become the future geeks, we need to make sure that our language is inclusive. And it's the same when a trainer is teaching another person, because the jargon can really turn people off. Yes. And and it can break the communication because, you know, if someone is not turned off and is motivated enough to continue, they may not understand what, what is being talked about. And also, sometimes I find that when you do use the plain English, it forces you to be quite accurate and precise. Yes. Because you, you cannot hide between this general concept. I find there's a mastery in being able to simplify and communicate complex notions in a simple way. You cannot do that if you don't understand what you're talking about. That's exactly right. So we were, we were chatting about this the other day. And what, what was it that we were saying that it's like the Zen master, the, the Tai Chi master, the martial arts master. Or the lawyers right, and the right. accountants. I, when you come out of a lawyer's office and you're like, huh? What was, I don't understand anything he said. I don't pick that lawyer. Right. I always pick the lawyer. I come out of his office and I understand exactly what it's about. Same thing for the accountant. You know these people are good because they can explain to someone, to a novice who doesn't have the knowledge, they can explain clearly what the situation is. And that takes a lot of mastery. Yes. So it's the, the Tai Chi master who is so skilled, he never has to fight, even though he knows how to. Or that we have enough mastery of the subject that we can talk about it in very clear and simple ways. And that absolutely we can then attach the labels to it. If we want to talk about discriminative stimuli, because that's our audience, we can. But perhaps we really want to talk about cues and make that distinction between a cue and a command for our audience. But first, can you clearly define the procedure? And one of the, I think, main focus points of the webinar 
was on negative reinforcement and you know, what is the procedure that we're talking about? Mm. What role does it play in the training? And, and of course, with horses, that always brings us to the rope handling and it brings us to the whole question of what place does pressure and release of pressure play in horse training? Is it negative reinforcement? Is it just cues? What is the procedure? Or for me, it might be even better to talk not so much procedure, but teaching process. I could have a horse that if I begin to slide down a lead rope and I just move my hand softly along that lead rope and the horse backs up promptly, backs up smoothly, backs up in good balance, it meets all the criteria. But if I don't know the history of how that behavior was taught, I don't know whether I should Mm. have a smile on my face or be thinking, ooh, how can I get this horse out of here? So it's really what is the teaching procedure that brought us to this understanding of this signal? Why does that horse back up? Is the horse backing up because the horse has learned that if he doesn't, bad things are going to happen. And so he's in an avoidance situation. Or has he learned through a series of very, very small steps that if he shifts his weight, click, he's going to get a treat. If he shifts his weight a little bit more, click, he's going to get another treat. Oh, I can solve this puzzle. And wow, this is kind of fun. I can get my human to reach into her pocket and give me goodies. And all I have to do is shift my weight back. I know that's the hot behavior because when she stands in front of me and puts her hand on the lead rope in this particular manner and I back up, she's all smiles and I get goodies. But if I try and go forward, I don't hear the click in a treat. And as a matter of fact, I may feel that her hand slides down the lead rope and and the way she's standing in front of me feels more like a door that's closed. So I know that's not the right answer. And by having that door closed, it makes it easier for me to say, whoop, wrong direction, let me try something else, let me back up, ah, there's the right answer. So it's, it's what is the teaching process that brings us to that understanding? And is that a teaching process that you, the handler, are comfortable with? Is it a teaching process that your horse was comfortable with? And there aren't universal rights and wrongs. We had early on in the training, one of the horses who was one of the great teachers that we had was Gregor, who was a Dutch warm blood stallion. Beautiful horse, gorgeous horse. He had been bred in Holland to be an Olympic level athlete. But when they started him, the farm where he was started, they used a lot of punishment. We know how he was handled because the person who in the U.S. who eventually bought him was working at the farm when, when Gregor was a three-year-old and was started under saddle. So he saw the beatings this, this horse took. By the time he had wound his way from Europe to the U.S., he was a very angry, very aggressive horse. And he ended up with one of my great friends and clients, Sarah Sturman, and she had to start him not with rope handling and not with using any of the normal comes from the 
normal horse training toolbox, as it were. Everything was poisoned. Everything, every normal, this is how you handle horses, was a signal to this horse to attack. And so you couldn't start with a lead rope with him. You couldn't start in a normal fashion. And what Sarah did with him was she taught him tricks, which I always found really ironic because here is this absolutely magnificent Dutch warm blood stallion who is learning to blow bicycle horns. But it worked because nobody had ever taught him to blow bicycle horns. It was, and so he could learn how to learn with something that was a completely clean slate. So we have to look there at the history of the horse and say, all right, well, I may be perfectly comfortable sliding down a lead rope and using the shaping on a point of contact techniques that I've developed to be clicker compatible, but this horse isn't. So no matter how good I am with a lead rope, no matter how kind I am with a lead rope, no matter how thoughtful I am with a lead rope, his expectation is that that lead rope is at any moment going to turn into a tool that will attack him. So it doesn't matter what I think of it. What matters is what Gregor thinks of it. Now, over time, Sarah was able to completely change his expectations and his associations with the lead rope. And he worked beautifully in hand, beautifully on the end of a lead rope, safely on the end of a lead rope, happily on the end of a lead rope. But she couldn't start that way. I would think that after that teaching process, when she did take the tools that were poisoned before, I wonder, and that might be a question for Jesus again, but something had changed in the environment. Something quite important had changed in the environment. It was a new handler. That was part of it, yes. Yes. And and there was a there was a history with this handler that with the tricks and yes. every all the process she went through was very positive. So there was a change in conditions and so when you change the conditions you change the behavior. Yes. Definitely. And possibly if a previous handler had come back, I would suspect that the reaction would be different than even in the present time. I don't know. Under the right conditions, and nothing, nothing is ever erased. This I really believe, that nothing is ever erased. And under the right conditions, you can trigger old history that may have been buried for years, but it's still there. But if the same conditions come back, then the behavior right. will come back. What we want to do with training is shift those conditions enough so that the slide down of a lead rope doesn't trigger the protective behaviors that he had of, I'm going to attack you before you can attack me. Instead, he has learned alternatives. Mm -hmm. So when you slide down the lead rope, he had learned that instead of snaking his neck out at you and, and coming at you, that all he had to do was drop his head and click, you would reinforce it. You know, there was uh, yesterday, there was this 
part of the discussion at the webinar, which I thought was so great, because we were talking about emotions and emotional responses. And yes. uh, Jesus was saying, you know, in other disciplines, psychology, you might have, let's say a student, and I may not be accurately, the example may be a bit different, but let's say a student is not having good grades in math, let's say. And so, you know, people would try to intervene and give that uh, student pep talks and, but he would still not be having good grades. And so from a more behavioral point of view, the strategy would rather be to make him successful. Right. Right. And through the behavior of succeeding, then the emotion of confidence would be generated. Right. Right. And and you, you help him to be more successful by making the task simpler, making the task easier, making finding that part of the task that your learner, whether it's a child or a horse or a dog or whatever, that your learner can be successful in reinforcing that and then slowly adding complexity to the task so that now under those when you when the child is sitting down to do the math he knows how to do it and the emotions follow the success of the behavior so yeah so instead of trying to change the emotion right it's the behavior right because if you've you've made me feel oh i'm i've, I've got great self-esteem i feel really good yes you can you can do it but then you put me in front of a math test and I look at it and think, two plus two, I don't have a clue. Then I'm gonna be right back to feeling insecure. So yeah, I thought that was a, a great discussion. If you are successful, then you feel confident. And so the emotion is following the behavior yes. and not the opposite. Yes. I, thought, I thought that was really neat. And, and the distinction that he was making between emotions and emotional responses mm -hmm. the emotion is is that's in the black box yeah but the emotional responses is that which we can see we can see the hair on the back of the dog rising up we can see the tension around the horse's mouth we can we can see the emotional reactions the emotional responses yeah the physical ones are observable yes mm -hmm. yeah so I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the discussion when he went into that. Yeah, the whole discussion about em emotional responses for me was one of the big highlights yes. of that because it's we've we've been hearing a lot of things around. I find I don't know if it's just my what I've been reading lately, but first of all, you know, you read that yes, emotions are behaviors. So those behaviors, the kind of behaviors you've just described, pupil dilating and they're reflections of an of an internal state that's right so you you can observe them but you know for me it it had always been that the focus should be on observable behavior because those were the ones that were most useful to us in developing our plans and but more and more you know and one of the things he was saying yesterday was that well, emotional responses and emotions are captured yes. in the training. They're part of the training. And so this is why when you create clean loops, and we've been talking about this, you know, wanting to create emotional control and loops, clean loops are loops where 
emotional control is part of the loop, if you have frustration as part of the loop, it's not a clean loop. Right. And yeah, that you want the precision and you want the emotional state. You you want you want to build that in to the base of your behavior. So if you're building on a loop that contains yes, I touched the target, but then I grabbed it at your hand to get the food because I'm feeling anxious about the food I'm building that into my loop that's right I'm building the I'm building that emotional reaction in and of course it can be really hard because with a lot of these animals that we start out with and I don't want to just say horses because it could be any species that you're working with when you're starting out with some of these these individuals they're not in a relaxed, comfortable, at ease, I'm happy in my own skin, emotional place. That when you, particularly when I'm working with clinic horses, and you have a horse that has just been taken out of his home environment, away from his friends, put on a trailer, brought to a strange place, and now we're saying, be calm, be relaxed. Be relaxed. And some of them are. (laughs) And some of them want to be like Dorothy. They just want to click their heels and go home to Kansas. And yes, you you absolutely can begin to shift dramatically the emotional place that that horse is in. But you do it really by building a repertoire of behaviors. Well, when you're feeling nervous, here's something you could do besides bolting. You could stand on this mat you could put your head down. And when you do that, you discover lots of good things happen. You get lots of clicks and treats. The world seems a lot safer. And bit by bit, some of the the defensive behavior disappears. I've seen this, oh, I always go back. There was a, a stallion that I worked with. He was a fjord stallion, beautiful horse. And just really, really lovely horse that had been imported from Holland. So even though he's a Norwegian fjord, he came from Holland. And he was the dream horse for his owner. She had wanted this horse, this kind of horse, basically all her life. And they, when I first met them, they hated one another. It was so frustrating. They just annoyed one another. He wanted to play gelding games with her. He thought she was the best squeaky toy ever. So when she stood near him, he was always crowding into her space and, and sort of nudging at her and nipping at her. And, and she'd flap her arms and try and get him out of her space. And he thought that was really entertaining. It's like watching two, two young horses who are turned out with their halters on and they spend the whole day grabbing at each other's halters. Well, that's what this horse was like. So the more he nudged at her, the more she nudged with her elbows and they just were at loggerheads. Then I took him and went into what I refer to as the grown-ups are talking and just was completely non-reactive to all of this nudging, nipping, mouthing, checking out my pockets, doing all of this mugging type of behavior. I focused in on one element that I could get, which was every now and then his head went away from my arm and I clicked and reinforced that and I just focused on that. And there was all this other stuff initially 
that was happening at the same time. But the more I focused on that one tiny little element, the more it grew and it just pushed everything else away. And it'd be interesting to have Jesus talk about that, of what is going on there, because a lot of what we hear would suggest that oh, it shouldn't really work that way. That when you're clicking that one little moment where his head is moving away, you're not just teasing out one piece of this horse. When I'm giving the food to the horse, it's the whole horse that's eating. So how can this work? I think that would be a really interesting question to raise with Jesus. It seemed to me that one of the the recommendation is that, again, the, and, and this is why loopy training, the, the, the clean loop, the smallest unit that is clean is, I find it so helpful because what he was saying yesterday is when a behavior is very messy and we, we kind of think, I'm concentrating on this criteria right now and I'm going to fix the rest later, that that's a more difficult route than to concentrate on the smaller unit and have that clean and then build on it because otherwise you're kind of you'll be fighting with the rest of the mess so it's easier and it'll go faster if you just concentrate on the smaller unit that is clean and build on it rather than try to clean it up later yes we used to hear that huh? we used to say well if you're working on a criteria you can kind of lower your other criteria but I'm kind of hearing something else now. I kind of hear that it's better to work on a smaller unit where everything is clean rather than something bigger where you're going to clean up later. Yes, I always think of it as a funnel. Picture a funnel where the, the top end is facing up and then it narrows down to the narrow end. Or you could flip it and and start with the big end on the ground and then it narrows down to the the narrow part of the funnel. And so if you're starting, well, let me just sort of start generally and anything that's kind of in the ballpark, I'll click and reinforce. Mm -hmm. Well, that's starting with the, at the top of the funnel. And then you're hoping that as you go along that you're, you're gradually getting more and more refined and so that what you get coming out the bottom is the narrow end of the funnel is this very clean behavior that you started out by having sort of a broad general criteria for it's like pruning a bush and you just kind of pruned here and pruned there and gradually you get down to this very refined shape problem with that is it can be a very fragile behavior if you stress that narrow end of the funnel you're you very quickly regress back to these broader criteria or these broader parts of the repertoire. It's almost like your bush suddenly sprouted all of those missing limbs that you've chopped off, except now they've sprouted back and all of those behaviors that you were trying to eliminate have just come back. And you're probably creating a lot of frustration too. Yeah, you could almost say that even though you're using positive reinforcement, you were trying to get rid of behaviors. So really, are you... Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So then the other way of doing this is to start out with the narrow end of the funnel where you start out looking for very, very precise, small behavior. It might be something like this stallion moving his head an inch or two 
away from my arm and clicking and reinforcing that. And then as that behavior becomes more consistent and the horses thrive on consistency, they love consistency and, and they love patterns. So as that behavior begins to become more consistent, then I'll see that when he takes his nose away, that often when his nose is three inches away from my body, that lo and behold, I'm starting to notice that his ears are flicking forward as well. Well, I can now say, well, I'm gonna wait and click when your nose meets that criteria of being, and I always think of it as in, a, in an imaginary box. And I'm the only one who knows whether the horse actually has his nose in the box because I'm the only one who can see this invisible box. So when the, when the horse has his nose in that invisible box and his ears pop forward, then I'll click and reinforce. But since the behavior of having his ears popping forward is already occurring, it's seamless shaping because the criteria that I'm shifting to is already present before I make that my main focus. And it's, it's a lovely way to shape. And so now, as I expand out the behaviors and my funnel gets larger and larger and larger, gets rounder and rounder as we go out, now if I stress the behavior, it's a very stable behavior. And so if, if you can picture that a funnel, if I stress that broad base of the funnel, if I stress it a little bit, I'll get a little regression maybe, but I'm still in a very broad base of that funnel instead of I'm in the narrow part that's going to very quickly broaden out and I'll have behaviors I, that I haven't wanted mm -hmm. to reinforce for quite a while. So it's... The, the other thing too that we were reminded of is that sometimes we think that the loop is made of the behavior and the click but that's not the full loop, right? We have to remember that any part of that loop, if there's something that we, every, the loop, everything is embedded in the loop and the loop is far from complete. Uh, just when you click, there's still a lot of things going, going on after that. And so you might want to work on if it's, if, if, and you've mentioned this before, if the food delivery is not clean, whether it's from your part or the horse's part, well, you may need to work just on that unit. Yes. Uh, because that's kind of, you know, another little part of it. The part of the mantra of loopy training is that both sides of the click have to be clean for a loop to be clean. You may have a horse touching a target magnificently, but if as you're reaching into your pocket, you see him doing a lot of resource guarding with his neighbor and then grabbing the food from you because he's afraid that his neighbor's gonna come and grab it before he can, well, that's not a clean loop. And that emotional reaction that we're seeing, you don't want to weave, be weaving that into the formation of your training. Or it could be something like, and this was too discussed yesterday, if he doesn't know where to expect the food or he doesn't know what to expect and maybe he's disappointed with what the reward is, the reinforcement is. So all these can create frustration in the animal. Right. 
And so if sometimes you toss the food, and some in the case of the dogs, because we don't really toss for horses, but perhaps even a more novice, uh, not a skilled trainer, sometimes her hand is at this place where the horse, you know, is in good balance. And sometimes the horse is, is the food is presented somewhere else and the, the horse or the dog doesn't know where to expect it. Well, and there's frustration there. Well, that's not a clean loop. That's right. That's right. And so just to work on that part, click means the food where. That's right. So we've been chatting a long time. So let me, let's end this podcast by sharing a story because it's a great story. So I told you about Gregor and how he started out this just, he was one of the scariest horses that I've ever met. When I first met him, there was no question that we were going to be working with protective contact. I was really glad that he was in a stall that had metal bars that separated me from him because he had learned that you don't give a lot of warning, you just go after people. And he had good grounds for it. But Sarah did this absolutely, absolutely magnificent job with this horse. And the last time I saw him, it was just, it was a magical, it was a magical time. I had gotten an email from somebody who was part of the New York Institute of Film Studies. Some, I, I'm probably getting the title wrong, but it's the school in New York City that trains people in the, in the film industry. And for the graduate project that the seniors had to produce, they had to produce a movie. And, and in this movie, they, there was a scene where this teenage girl whose gray mare was colicking, and they had to film a horse that was lying down and looking like it was colicking. And they had found from one of the local hack lines near the farm where they were filming, this gray, sort of gaunt, thoroughbred mare, the, the kind that you see on the weekend trail riding kind of situations. So not a horse in great condition, but they were using her in the film. Only they needed a horse who knew how to lie down. So they contacted me and they said, could I help them? They needed a gray horse who was trained to lie down. Well, I didn't have gray horses, so, but I knew that Sarah had taught Gregor to lie down. And I knew that, that Sarah was a skilled trainer and that she would be able to handle a film set just fine. So I put them in contact with her and they arranged to have Sarah bring Gregor for an evening of filming. And she had to borrow my trailer, so I went down with them. And I've got a great trailer that allows you to have access to the horse easily when the horse is, is in the trailer. And it turned out that the teenager who was going to be in this film was afraid of horses. So they needed her to be able to stand next to a horse holding a lead rope and look like she was madly in love with this horse instead of quaking in her boots and needing to run in the opposite direction. So Sarah invited her down to the trailer where Gregor was waiting and introduced her to this beautiful, magnificent, used-to-be-aggressive Dutch warm-blood stallion. And she had all of his toys in the trailer so first she had Gregor blowing his bicycle horn and playing the piano. And then he gave this, this teenager a kiss on the cheek. And by the time she was done being introduced to Gregor, she was totally at ease 
and madly in love. So now it's time to get Gregor ready for the filming. And they were filming at a farm that was no longer occupied. So there was a one of those old wooden farmhouses and it, the circular drive and off to the side, the old farm barns. But they wanted Gregor to walk up along this driveway and they had to film at night because that's when this horse was colicking. So they had to wait until the sun went down. And this was summer, so it was already fairly late. And Gregor had to walk along this driveway with huge spotlights, because they had to have the right lighting for to be able to see him in the dark. These huge spotlights shining down on him and those enormous reflector panels that are the size of a garage on either side of him. And then he had to walk up to the top of the driveway and stand there and wait while they got all of their cameras and filters and everything else adjusted, and then on cue, lie down. And Sarah looked at this and said, my horse is not going to lie, I mean, he lies down, but he's not going to lie down on stone gravel. He's just not going to. So they scratched their head and they came up with a plan. They, they got some shavings and they put the shavings down on the gravel. And then they had to make the shavings look like gravel. So they got their makeup department to come in and they painted all of the shavings and got the shavings just so, so that it would look like he was lying down on gravel, even though it was shavings. And then Gregor had to come up and he walked magnificently up the, the driveway. And then he stood on his shavings, but he had to stand pretty quietly because you didn't want to disturb all of this beautifully painted shavings. And they had a huge reflector screen in front of him, various spotlights shining on him. And the camera person was down on the ground with this camera that cost probably several hundred thousand dollars and was literally probably a foot and a half from Gregor. None of these people knew anything about horses. We weren't going to tell them that, generally speaking, this wasn't the safest place to be in front of a horse. But Gregor was, was super. And then they had to make all of their camera angle adjustments and filter adjustments. And it took forever. And Sarah was there with Gregor going through his repertoire. Could you pick up this foot? Could you pick up that foot? Could you do a nose target? How about an ear target? How about picking up this foot? Now pick up that foot. Now give me a nose target. Now target your shoulder, target your hip. She kept him beautifully engaged through the whole procedure, which took forever. And then finally they were ready. And they said, so can he lie down? And Sarah gave him the cue and down he went and he laid down and he rolled and then he got up and it was perfect. And I just was so tickled that here was this horse that started out so aggressive, so aggressive. And look at what he had become. So the conclusion is there's always hope. The conclusion is that when you follow good science, which Sarah did, when you develop your good handling skills, and when you work from your heart for the good of the horse, amazing things can happen. That's a great place to end the podcast. Yep. So that's what we'll do. 
As you can probably tell from the way we were both talking, one webinar with Jesus is not enough. We've invited him back for an encore performance Sunday, July 29th, 2018 at 1.30 Eastern Time. I hope you can join us. Yes, and since I'm sure in this second webinar, we're going to be making references to many of the things that Jesus talked about in the June 30th webinar, we've decided to make the recording of that first webinar available for purchase. We don't yet have a shopping cart set up in our website. So if you want to order it, you can email me at curlanda at verizon.net. Don't worry if you can't remember the email. You can also find my email through the equosity.com website. Scroll down to the webinars section and click on the more information button. That will take you to all the information you need. It's set up to answer any of the questions you have about the upcoming webinar or about ordering the current webinar. So again, if you want to listen to the June 30th podcast with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, email me at curlanda at verizon.net or go to the equosity.com website and scroll down to the webinar section. Once you've emailed me, I'll send you a PayPal invoice. And once it's completed, you'll receive links that give you access to both the audio and video file of the webinar. If you order before our next webinar on July 29, 2018, the purchase price of the June 30th webinar is $60. If you order after the July 29 webinar, the purchase price of Jesus' first webinar will be $75. If you have any questions about any of the webinars, do please email us. You can contact us through the equosity.com website. It's a fabulous resource. He packed so much in. I know I will be listening to it many times between now and the end of July. I already have lots of questions and I know I will have even more by the next webinar. Jesus definitely knows how to get us thinking, so I hope you'll join us. Remember, the webinar is July 29, 2018, at 1.30 Eastern Time. Go to our website, equosity.com, for more information. If you have any questions about any of the webinars, do please email us. You can contact us through the equosity.com site. And now before we let you go, in the podcast, I use the metaphor of a funnel to describe the difference between a macro and a micro approach to training. I wasn't sure that that image was clear, so I wrote a short article that describes it better. I've put it up in the members library. Go to equosity.com to read it. If you aren't yet a member, just subscribe to the site and we'll send you the login. So that's it. If you're interested in the webinars, or you want to catch up on past podcasts, or you want to read the articles in the members library, just go to equosity.com. And remember, if you're struggling with the spelling, just squeeze equus into curiosity, and you'll get equosity. So until next time, have fun with training. Bye.